Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to remind everybody to not get sucked into the magical thinking. There's a whole bunch of folks in this country, whether or not they live in Washington, D.C., or New York, work in the media, they're big donors, they want you to think everything is normal. It's not. Times have changed, and we have to change with them. This is not a fight, guys, between Republicans and Democrats. This is a fight between those that believe in democracy and those that would tear it down. I need everybody to go to lincolnproject.us and sign up today to join this movement. If we do it together, we have the opportunity to decide what tomorrow looks like, but we can't get to tomorrow unless we win today. Thanks again, everybody. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie. Stuart, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. Great to be here. So today I want to talk about something that happened a long, long time ago, and that is Abraham Lincoln and his speech to the Cooper Union on February 27th, 1860. It's also called the Right Makes Might speech. And we're recording and streaming this episode on Friday the 24th. It'll drop sometime next week. But I want to start out by saying that one of the reasons why this particular speech, Stuart, is important to us, aside from the fact it is a notable and historic speech that really launched Lincoln's 1860 presidential campaign. We're also humbly named after him. But we were able to, three years ago this week, actually go to the Cooper Union and speak from the same podium that Lincoln delivered this speech to about 1,500 people and discuss why we had launched the Lincoln Project and really give our sort of opening gambit. Remember, this is February 2020. This is pre-COVID, right? We didn't know any of this was going to happen. It was a great event. We felt really good about it. We were going to take the show on the road. And literally two weeks later, like the world shut down. But Lincoln, prior to this, had been a one-term member of Congress. He'd failed in a bid for the United States Senate against Douglas, the, you know, his opponent in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debate, Stephen Douglas, Democrat, also from Illinois. And here he went in front of, you know, the grandees of New York City, including many people of the Republican Party, which had just been launched in 1854, right? This was a brand new party in uh, Ripon, Wisconsin, that essentially said slavery is wrong. Slavery should not be extended further into the states and split the Whigs, right? The Whigs went from being one of the two major parties to being dead in basically six years. And so now Lincoln gives his first real opportunity, a well-researched, well-thought-out explanation as to why what the South was asking for was not about some reasonableness when it came to the institution of slavery, but they wanted the South, Southern states, slaveholding states, wanted what they wanted, when they wanted it, how they wanted it, and they didn't want any argument about it. And if they didn't get that, then they were threatening violence, they were threatening secession, which ultimately they did after Lincoln's election in November of 1860 and South Carolina seceded and the rest is history. So before we started talking, though, a lot of the speech is about how the founders saw the founders. And what I mean is the men who wrote and signed the Constitution felt about the institution of slavery. The word slave, slavery is never mentioned in the Constitution. They implicitly believe that it should not be extended into the states without federal authority, that in federal territories, that the United States government, the federal government had the authority to determine whether or not slavery could extend there. But that so much like we see now, that as 
time went on out of the 1700s, you know, the sort of age of American enlightenment, and now into the early 1800s when sectionalism became something more, there were compromises, Missouri, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, everything else. Now it became, you know, a cultural argument. This is a way of life. This is about freedom. This is about states' rights, right? This is the 10th Amendment. This is the 5th Amendment. And so it went from being a constitutional argument to being one that for the South became political and then ultimately military in nature. So talk a little bit about, you know, rereading the speech, how you saw it and what you thought Lincoln was trying to accomplish as he spoke these words 160 years ago. One of the lessons of this speech is that words matter. You know, I, I grew up in Mississippi. I'm a product of the Mississippi Public Schools. The way that we studied the Civil War then was very different. And it was a product of the lost cause revisionist history of the Civil War, that it was about honor and dignity and freedom. But I don't even know why we even had this debate. It came up with Trump when he was in the White House over what was the cause of the Civil War. Each state wrote a secessionist statement. They wanted it to be known for history why they were doing this. And what Lincoln is saying, those statements proved them to be right. Every one of these secessionist documents that they drafted mentioned slavery. And, you know, I, I don't think it's sort of talked about enough. When the Civil War broke out, Mississippi was the fifth wealthiest state in the nation. In 1866, it was the poorest. In 2023, it's the poorest. So the pro-slavery argument here was ultimately about money. And about money for a fairly small number of people. Incredibly small number of people. You know, they had done this calculation that your labor costs are less if you don't have to pay them. And, you know, to me, what is the most relevant of all that speech to us now is this definition of right and wrong and the power of a moral argument. And in this moment, which I think is the most dangerous moment since 1860, I think that's the lesson. Don't compromise. There was one argument he made, which was about telling the truth and abiding by the facts in an argument. And he said, quote, but he has no right to mislead others who have less access to history and less leisure to study it into the false belief that, quote, our fathers who framed the government under which we live were of the same opinion, thus substituting falsehood and deception for truthful evidence and fair argument. So, I mean, even back then, as I talked about it when we first started talking, was that it had gone from a constitutional issue about whether or not you could expand slavery into U.S. territories that had not yet become states into one of, again, politics and preference by the slaveholding states, which is this is what we want. You know, it came that, you know, it wasn't good enough that we got one slave state for one free state anymore, right? We wanted the option. They called it popular sovereignty right? The idea that you could vote as a new state or territory to decide whether or not you could hold other humans in bondage, which is sort of an interesting sort of idea of freedom, to say the least. Um, interesting, probably the exact wrong word. But he understood, too, that the South was willing to make whatever argument it needed to make. And we see that now today, too, which is when truth stops mattering for the people on the quote unquote aggrieved side, and I think the Southern states saw themselves as aggrieved. And now we see our, you know, so much of what we see on the right now is this sort of grievance culture is you can make any argument you want because it's not based in fact anyway. 
Yeah, and I think you can say in 1860 it was all about race. There weren't white people enslaved. And I think uh, in 2023, what's happening in the country, I believe, is all about race. I think that the movement toward autocracy could be understood, I think, in a very simple construct that when you and I were drawn to the Republican Party, it was a Reagan party. And democracy by conservatives was seen as a crown jewel of American success. Now, democracy is viewed as a weapon that is going to destroy these people's freedom. That because the fact that there are less and less white people voting in this country and their definition of freedom was that we would still have power. So I think this is really so telling. And, you know, you look at Ronald Reagan wins the sweeping onside in 1980 with 58% of the white vote. John McCain loses with 58% of the white vote. Trump's coalition, 85% white in a country that's 60% white. So I think it is about a group of people, overwhelmingly white, who sense correctly that they are losing power. And that really is what was happening in 1860. Right. It was a transitional time. If you go back and you read any number of the books about the founding, specifically about the Constitution, less about the Articles of Confederation, like the founders knew they had a problem when it came to slavery. Washington knew it was a problem. Jefferson knew it was a problem. Now, these were slaveholders, too, and they knew it was an issue. They didn't know what else to do about it, you know, to their eternal shame, but they knew that they were going to have a problem. They, they basically planted a time bomb in the Constitution and I guess hoped against hope that somehow it would all figure itself out, that the institution of slavery would eventually die out. There were all these schemes about, you know, can we send them back to Africa? Can we send them to Haiti? Can we send them to South America? Which none of which were, one, again, these individuals, these people were considered property, the slaves. And two, you know, it was, you know, how are you going to do it? It's expensive because, Stuart, in 1787, when the Constitution was written, there were so many slaves in the South that the Southern delegates demanded that they be given some proportion of representation, which happened to be three-fifths. So it was sort of like the South said, I want this from the get-go, right? And not only that, like these people can't vote, they won't ever vote, but I want the advantage of saying I get X more people in Congress because, you know, these, these people whom I hold in bondage count as part of my population. I mean, it was doomed from the get-go, and then as you had the wheels of the early American Republic start turning, you know, it created necessary friction because suddenly the northern states, which had been, with the exception of New York, I think was one of the last northern states to, to abolish slavery, had been slave-free for generations at that point, right? So, well, I mean, the sectional nature of it, the north versus south nature is an accident almost, I guess, of geography as much as anything else and how they came up economically. The North was more industrialized. The South was more agrarian. But could the South, to your point, would Mississippi have been the fifth most prosperous state in the country if the plantation owners were having to pay the people working, you know, picking cotton all day, uh, working the fields all day, working in their homes all day? Well, we did an experiment in that, and we found out that no. And what I find really interesting as a Southerner, um, it's less and less, but you drive around a place like Mississippi, and there is a sense that something really happened here. I mean, it is difficult for people to understand how poor Mississippi is. And the failure that these states have had to ever really 
economically succeed. So when you see Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about a divorce, Georgia gets 31% of its state budget from the federal government. If it wasn't from these people going to work in New York and California and these other states that they vilify, it's just amazing how this is still playing out. Well, let's talk about that because Lincoln survived to see the end of the war. He survived to see Appomattox Courthouse, and he lived about another week, maybe 10 days, uh, before he was assassinated. And Andrew Johnson, his drunken, boorish, racist vice president from Tennessee, took over, had really no interest whatsoever in Reconstruction or anything like that, did not believe that African-Americans should have equality, did not believe in the the certainly the 15th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 13th Amendment, certainly didn't believe in equality between the races. And so for four years, a time in which Reconstruction could have flourished and sort of evened out, to your point, what was going on in the South withered on the vine. Uh, it wasn't until 1868 that U.S. Grant comes in and tries to sort of make up for lost time. Another Republican president, also a hero of the Civil War, who also understood that you had to beat you know, this insurrection. That's the other thing I think we should note is that Lincoln as president never saw the Confederacy as a legitimate country. He saw them as insurrectionists. He was never going to say this is a war between two countries. These are states who have risen in insurrection. And that was, I think, a genius move on his part because it didn't give the South any credibility in his own mind, but also within the context of the Constitution, which admittedly he sometimes took liberty with, especially on things like habeas corpus. You know, he said this is not a war amongst two nations. This is a civil war between states, and we are trying to bring you back to the Union. He ultimately understood, and there are some great books on this. John Meacham's latest book on, on Lincoln is excellent, about the transformation that Lincoln had vis-a-vis -vis slavery as he was in the White House and as the war was going on. Because when he got there, he was very much like status quo antebellum, literally. We'll leave it as is if you guys are okay with it. And the South said, forget about it, right? Nope, 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 nope. We really know what you want to do. And in the way, Stuart, the South sort of got what it wanted least, which goes back to my theory that whatever you do to try and avoid your worst possible outcome, you will always find your way to it. And they thought they'd win the war. Like most wars that are started, the people that start them think they're going to win. The tragic history of Reconstruction still plays out. The reason that there are runoffs in these elections, like we saw in Georgia, when we just went through this, is because this system was developed to have two elections. And if someone didn't get 50% in the first, you would have a runoff. The thinking being that if a black person ran, they could maybe get 40%, not the 50. And then in a runoff, all the white people would vote for the white person. And it worked pretty much to perfection until Warnock won. There's just so many remnants of this. There were one-term governors in the South because in Reconstruction, there were appointed African-American governors. So a lot of these states developed a power center around the lieutenant governor, which is why you see someone like in your old home state, Bob Bullock, who was lieutenant governor, you know, years and years and years and basically ran the state. And when George Bush got elected governor, looked to him as his mentor. So he had very weak governors, one-term governors for a long time. And just all of these ways that the efforts to deny African-Americans the vote and to participate in society at a full level permeated the legal structure, the educational structure, with all of the predictable economic consequences. And we see it sort of on the rise again 
really in 2021, the first wave, as legislatures are convening again in states, we should expect that there'll be some more this year and even next year ahead of another general election in 2024. I want to switch gears on something real quick, Stuart, about the idea of conservatism. Now, when I was a kid, you could be a Republican, you could be a conservative, you could be a conservative Republican. I was always a Republican. I've never been a self-styled conservative. But Lincoln asked this in his speech, quote, what is conservatism? Is it not adherence to the old and tried against the new and untried? Now, that's sort of the Webster's definition of it. But what I think he's trying to say is, isn't conservatism the idea we look to tradition? We look for the things that have worked. We do not go out and try and find radical new things. And the Republican Party of today, I submit to you, is not at all conservative despite what it says, but it is in fact a radical political organization because it wants to do things no one ever thought were a good idea previously. It's not like, oh, you know, we have to run the government the way we ran it in 1959 or 1989. This is like, we don't want the government, A, to run at all in some cases, but B, only to run the way we think it should run, even if there's no history of that. Yeah, 100% it's not a conservative. I mean, you can go down the line. Donald Trump was supported by the Russians. And now the pro-Putin element in American politics is in the Republican Party. It's extraordinary. And there is no desire to govern. And ultimately, governing is about not getting everything you want. It is about having to acknowledge that there is some benefit in the other argument. So you compromise. And that has become politically fatal in these primaries. I mean, all these campaigns I worked in, when you tested, bipartisanship always tested well. You would go out and say it even if you didn't believe it. Now it's the opposite. A lot of these people, I think, know, because they're not idiots, that you have to have bipartisan solutions. But they can't go out and say that. So it sort of completely reversed itself. Well, but I think the bipartisanship thing, too, though, because we've been having many conversations with folks over the last couple of weeks that, you know, were vestigial Republicans, Republicans like we used to be. And like the Republican Party, you know, it needs to serve as a check on the Democrats. Like the two party system works because no one party can get too powerful. And my response to them, which, frankly, Stuart, I often get they, they shake their heads and say that's crazy, is, well, we only have one pro-democracy party left in the United States, and that's the Democrats. That doesn't make me a Democrat, doesn't mean I agree with everything, but it means I see one party, the Republican Party, as the political wing of a larger authoritarian movement with Tucker Carlson and the financiers and Stephen Miller and all these other people. But to break somebody out of that bipartisan pre-2015 thinking, even amongst people who should know better intellectually, is even to this day, is still a very difficult nut to crack. It goes back to Lincoln's speech. They don't want to believe this. So let's look at what the good Republicans have gotten us. The good Republicans elected Glenn Youngkin, who's out there campaigning for Kerry Lake. The good Republicans in this speaker fight, just think about it. So these good Republicans, they voted for McCarthy, knowing they were getting Marjorie Taylor Greene as the second most powerful person in the House of Representatives, a racist, a pro-Putin agent, and I don't think you can compromise with evil. And I think that the party is an anti-democratic force, which I think is evil. Well, and, you know, one of the lines in Lincoln's speech, you know, he refused to allow slavery supporters to employ, quote, contrivances such as groping for some middle ground between the right and the wrong. And 
people are like, oh, you're bipartisan. You're nonpartisan. I'm like, I don't know what any of that means. I am absolutely a partisan, though, on behalf of American democracy. And that's the thing. I mean, my litmus test for a bipartisan legislator, a bipartisan member of Congress, the United States Senate or whatever it is, is, you know, not whether or not you voted for the infrastructure bill. That's an easy lift, right? That's good all the way around for you. It's whether or not on January, whatever it was, 2021, or maybe February 2021, whether or not as a Republican member of the United States House, one, you had voted to certify the election for Joe Biden, which again, you don't get credit for stopping at the stop sign, right? That was your moral, constitutional, legal responsibility. But second, did you vote to impeach Donald Trump, who you knew was a clear and present danger as soon as weeks ago to the United States? And very few of them voted, right? 10 out of 190, whatever it was, voted to impeach Donald Trump. You know why? One, they knew that the resolution was going to pass anyway because the Democrats had a majority. But two, Stuart, they knew that if they took that vote, they would be on the outs like Liz Cheney, like Adam Kinzinger, like Jamie Herrera Butler, like Anthony Gonzalez and everybody else. And they decided, you know what? Not for me. And to me, that's not leadership. That's pragmatism. And pragmatism in the face of this is collaboration to me. I think it's cowardice. And it continues. 90 plus percent of them still say that they would support Donald Trump if he's the nominee. So just wrap your mind around that. You're saying that you will support someone who organized a coup to end democracy in America. And I'll support that person. I mean, that just is so extraordinary. I mean, you look at somebody like Mitch McConnell, right? He knew that Trump should be convicted. He voted not to convict and then went out and gave a speech saying why he should have been convicted. And he could have gotten 17 Republicans to go along with him. No doubt about it. I don't know that Trumpism would be dead, but Trump as a candidate would be off the books, would be off the table. Well, also, it would you could then maybe look at the party and see there's some line that they're willing not to cross. It's a complete moral collapse when a Cheney has no role in the party. I really don't think we've seen anything like it in American history. And it's only getting worse. I mean, Ron DeSantis, you talk about history and talking about trying to ignore reality. I mean, literally banning African-American history. This will only accelerate. There is no moderating force in the Republican Party that rewards anything but accelerating this. And you know, I just go back to this. To me, the day of destiny here was when Trump came out for a total Muslim ban and the party went along with it. Where do you go? It's just all downhill. Well, this is what I think we've seen repeatedly. And, and if we wanted to spend the next two or three hours, we could probably pick out the individuals and the individual acts. But for the most part, and again, you always have to put the Cheneys and the Kinzingers to the side. When an otherwise normal, and I use that in quotation marks, Republican has the choice to moderate to the light and to the reasonable and to the constitutional and to the decent decision or go further into the darkness, they always go further into the darkness. The magnetism of that, whether or not it's Trumpism, whether or not it's the base voters of the Republican Party who now have become the sort of nihilistic people we were worried about that we warned about, they always take the latter choice. To your point about McConnell, they had a chance. They've had their chances. They've had their chances repeatedly. You know, they sort of stuck their heads up a little bit after November of last year, Stuart, and blamed Trump for costing them seats. But what are they really saying? 
Not that I'm against what Donald Trump did, but that I'm mad at him because he cost us power. That's why they were mad at him. It has nothing to do with any sort of uh, objection to Trumpism. The Lincoln Project captured it perfectly in that little video put out with Tim Scott getting asked, what is it that you disagree with about Trump? And he couldn't come up with anything. And Haley couldn't the week before. No. So this is why African-Americans do not vote for African-American Republican candidates in any larger numbers than they vote for white Republicans. You know, there was a period when we were only getting the same percent we're getting now, we being Republicans with African-Americans. And there was this sort of thing that existed that the reason African-Americans weren't voting for Republicans, because they really should, because, you know, we're really the conservatives and they're socially conservative and all this stuff. We're the patriotic party. They're really patriotic. We're an entrepreneurial party. They're really entrepreneurs. So there has to be something wrong. And it must be that we don't know how to talk to black people. So they have these consultants that would be hired that would come down and talk to us in campaigns. It's so humiliating to think we actually listen to try to tell us how to talk to black people. And they would say things like, you can't talk about good jobs. You have to talk about meaningful jobs. And we would all nod and do it. And then we go, of course, it didn't make any difference. The problem wasn't that black people didn't understand what we were saying. The problem was they did. So let me take a pause button on President Lincoln for a second and talk about how primary elections for any office work. To your point about Scott and Nikki Haley and all of the rest of them, with the exception maybe of DeSantis, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out, which is none of them want to attack Donald Trump. None of them even want to pretend he's in the race. You know, Nikki Haley said, I don't want to kick to the side. I want to kick forward at Joe Biden. But like the fiction of that is really breathtaking, Stuart, because that's not at all how primaries work. The whole point of primaries is to differentiate yourself from other candidates so that primary voters have a decision to make about who they believe best represents their, you know, worldview you know, the person they most want to represent them. And none of these people want to take on the orange elephant in the room. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things, again, I said it earlier, like this idea of 2015 thinking, like the idea that somehow you're going to be on the stage with the former president of the United States, leader of your party, that you want to run against him to take his old job, but you're not willing to say anything bad about him. You're not willing to differentiate on any policy, but of course that doesn't really matter or anything else. Why go through the effort? Why put your family through it? Why put the staff through it? Why put the fundraisers through it? Why put the donors through it? Why do any of it? I mean, they exist in a world where, like, I might have a shot if Donald Trump wasn't there. So I don't know. I mean, the guy could drop dead. Who knows? Maybe he'll get indicted and arrested and thrown in jail and he won't be able to run. But, you know, all these primaries I've worked in, all these presidential primaries, I worked in five of them and was involved in four on the winning side. You get on that stage, you've got to, at a point, walk on the stage and decide one of us is going to walk off the stage alive. You have to be willing to lose. To attack someone, you have to be willing to fail. And usually the most aggressive candidate wins a debate, overwhelmingly. And they're going to get up on stage with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump's going to attack them. And if they don't at least attack back and attack back harder than they were attacked, they're going to look weak. And if you get up there and, you know, do the DeSantis thing. With DeSantis, when he was attacked by Donald Trump, he says, well, I'm not involved. He was really channeling Michael Dukakis when he was attacked by Bush, because that was, nobody will believe this. I'm a smart guy. I'm a good governor. This is crazy. Well, that didn't work out so well. So 
I'll know that one of these people is beginning to understand when they announce and attack Trump. And you shouldn't wait to be attacked. You should go after him first. And you have to be willing to say, I'm going to get a lot of criticism for this. A lot of people are going to attack me for it. But I'm going to sustain this attack. You can't go out and do what Marco Rubio did, where he attacked for sort of 36 hours in the primary. This is the other part, too, about this sort of athleticism of candidates in this realm, Stuart, too, which is we recorded a, a podcast with Vicki Ward yesterday, and she helped crystallize something for me, which I hadn't thought about, which is these other people, DeSantis included, are conventional politicians. They will run largely conventional campaigns because they don't know how else to do it. Trump, on the other hand, is a New York developer. There was never anything he wasn't willing to do to win to get a deal. There wasn't any lie he wasn't willing to tell, any back he wasn't willing to stab, anybody he wasn't willing to rob blind, screw over, whatever else. And everything, as Trig Violson on our team always says, is a zero-sum game. That's how he sees the world. So he doesn't see the world in the context of policy and lanes and all the other crap that you know we sort of create around presidential primaries. He's like, I got to go kill these people, metaphorically, and I'm going to do it. And I don't care what it takes because you know what? Everybody knows who I am and they love me for it anyway. What do you got? And I don't think any of them really understand the nature of that. Trump is most alive, most happy. I think he feels the most complete when he is attacking. And usually the people who are good at something when they're doing it, enjoy it. And so part of the problem here is Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, they worked with Trump. And when they go out and they say Donald Trump shouldn't be president, their argument is really because I want to be president. That's not a very compelling argument. You have to be willing to go out and make a compelling, compassionate argument. What is wrong with Donald Trump in this party? Which is what Mitt Romney did in 2016 in the spring when he went out and gave that speech. You have to be willing to go at it that way. And if you're not, I think Trump is going to eat these people alive. Right. And I think some of them are already sort of putting themselves on the platter and ready to serve themselves up. All right. So let's get back to President Lincoln, but draw him into someone you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is Marjorie Taylor Greene. So towards the end of his speech, Lincoln really takes off and he says about the southern states, quote, your purpose then plainly stated is that you will destroy the government unless you be allowed to construe and enforce the Constitution as you please on all points in dispute between you and us. Marjorie Taylor Greene, during the president's State of the Union speech, gets up and starts screaming at him. This week, as we're recording this, Stuart, she calls for a national divorce, which is hard to construe as anything other than separation, civil war, whatever the case might be. And so I think she pretty much embodies that line that Lincoln gave when he was discussing you know, how the Southern states saw it. We want everything we want, and we want it right now. And if we don't, we're going to light the house on fire. And that sure seems to be how Green, Gosar, Boebert, Gates, and I would say a lot of the, you know, the Steve Bannons of the world and a lot of what I'm going to call the intellectual underpinning of the MAGA America First movement, that's what they want. They want the house on fire. Yeah, they absolutely do. Look, if I was a United States senator, I would go in and I would introduce a bill to cut off federal aid to these states. I mean, these are welfare states. These are states that could not exist without the federal government. They would blow away. I mean, if there is socialism in America, it's the you know, Tessie Valley Authority. 
the stuff that the Republican, these red states strive on. This is why I think, and I think a lot of us think, that if Trump does win the presidency, which you have to consider to be a real possibility, he's ahead now, that it will be the last election like anything that we can recognize. They don't want the country to be what it is becoming. So if you go back to that fateful day on certification, all of the areas that they said had disputed votes were these areas mysteriously where black people were. Atlanta, Philadelphia, Detroit. So they're basically just saying, we want to discard these votes and we'll win. Which, yeah. I mean, if you're getting 85% of your coalition is white and only white people can vote, you'll do better. Yeah, 100%. They can't change the demographics. So they will continually try to make it more difficult for non-white voters to vote. And it's only going to accelerate. Well, and again, because I think this is one of the other things, too, that I think we should always remind our viewers and listeners and our allies of, which is for them, much like the South in Lincoln's speech, it is an existential fight. They see their way of life slipping away. And for many of them, they will do whatever they believe is necessary to hold on to it. Trump is a willing and able tribune of that. All the front groups, all the money, right? There's never an end to the money or the people that are willing to go along with this stuff, right, Stuart? And, and this is the thing that, you know, you talk about demographics a lot. And, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of our allies too. And like, oh, there's more of us than there are of them. That is true. But only if everybody we need to turn out and show up at elections does so. If they get there first, to your point, like 2024, maybe it's the last thing we see that makes any kind of sense. Maybe we do get the sectionalism that Marjorie Taylor Greene appears to be rooting for, right? Because she knows that, like all authoritarian movements, division is their only hope, right? Anger, resentment, revanchism. That's their only hope is to try and get people to be so angry that, you know, they either turn out for the worst possible option or like Trump's stated goal, the Trump campaign's stated goal in 2020 was to make voter turnout as low as they could possibly get it because they, they knew in that context, not in every context, but in that context, that Trump couldn't win a high turnout election, right? That there were more voters who didn't like him that did like him. You know, Timothy Snyder talks about the politics of inevitability versus the politics of eternity. You know, I look at my career in politics and I was a propagandist for the politics of inevitability, which is really, that's the Reagan politics. It is inevitable that America is going to get better. Democracy is a way that is leading us to shiny city on a hill. And I think that all of the presidential Republican candidates operated within this hopeful framework that there is a better America out there. And then you get to Trump. And Trump was really the shift to the politics of eternity, which is the fight is the reward. And it has to be continuous because there will always be a threat. So if you read Trump's inaugural address, and then you say, okay, how much of this stuff did he accomplish? None of it. Disastrous presidency. And he got more votes. So the idea when Trump says he won, but it was stolen from him, is further validation that we can't win in this system, we must change the system. Because if Donald Trump can't do it, nobody can do it. And that's what they are. They're into this politics of eternity, which I just wrote this piece for Resolute Square. Take sections of that speech that Putin gave, 
and compare it to lines from DeSantis, lines from Santorum, lines from Tucker Carlson, you can't tell the difference. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, as we start to wrap up here, Stuart, is there is a difference, a marked difference between being patriotic and being nationalistic. Patriotic means that you love the nation you live in, you want it to be better, and you will defend its values. Nationalism means I hate everybody that's not like me, and all I want is power, and I see it very much on racial lines. And that's, I think, what we're also seeing. And, and again, you know, the fight we're up against, as I've tried to tell so many people in the last few weeks, is not Republican versus Democrat. It's not progressive versus conservative. It's democracy versus the alternative, right? The alternative doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about me. It doesn't care about our families. It doesn't care about our kids. I mean, Republicans claim to be the pro-life party, yet who do they put the, the bullseye on literally and figuratively more than American kids? whether or not it's they're safe at school or whether or not they can learn at school. They systematically want to disassemble the public education system in this country, which was what built this country over the decades and in the, in the centuries, you know, and give it to private schools. And like, it's all BS, right? It's like they just want people stupid. And it is a very dark and bleak outlook. And maybe it is reflecting many, many Americans. You know, when in 2016, when you listen to a Trump speech or you listen to a Bernie Sanders speech, you take the overt racism out, but you heard a lot of it was very populist, right? The system is screwing you. Now, they weren't necessarily wrong, but Bernie saw government as the way to fix it. Trump saw himself, or at least that's what he was holding out. I mean, Reagan was a sunny optimist. He saw the good in America. And the only time that sunny optimism disappeared was when he called the Soviet Union the evil empire after shooting down a Korean Airlines plane, or when he stood at the Berlin Wall and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Then it was a steely resolve when he faced Gorbachev and understood not only the nature of the policy, but also that this was competing viewpoints, one of which was going to win. And Reagan knew in his bones it was going to be the West. It was going to be democracy. You know, it's hard to believe 40 years later, we're back in this fight again. And let me say this, Stuart, as I close, let me let me close with Lincoln's closing paragraph. And I want to get your thoughts before we get out of here. He said, quote, if our sense of duty forbids this, then let us stand by our duty fearlessly and effectively. Let us be diverted by none of these sophistical contrivances wherewith we are so industriously plied and belabored. Contrivances such as groping for some middle ground between the right and wrong. Vain is the search for a man who should be neither a living man or a dead man, such as a policy of, quote, don't care on a question about which all true men do care, such as union appeals beseeching true union men to yield to disunionists, reversing the divine rule and calling not the sinners, but the righteous to repentance, such as indications to Washington imploring men to unsay what Washington said and undo what Washington did. Neither let us be slandered from our duty by false accusations against us, nor frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons to ourselves. Let us have faith that right makes might, and in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. 163 years later, Stuart, I'm not sure that there's any better exhortation than those of us in the pro-democracy movement, then we could probably read that every morning and say, okay, I know what I got to go do. Yeah. And a lot of times it's not very pleasant. This thing that we worked a lot of our professional career to build, we must destroy. That's not a good feeling. 
I mean, I'd love to be Joe Trippy and look back and say, man, I elected these people. Some were better than others. But, you know, they're still for democracy. You, you can't compromise with this. And that's the problem with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and all these people. They want to compromise with the guy in the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt in the Capitol. And you can't do that. The Republican Party is the one for years that said you can't negotiate with terrorism. And now they have terrorist elements of their own party and they can't fall over themselves fast enough to compromise. It was all a lie. And as I said to someone, I sent an email today. In this fight, you're going to have to decide where you stand. And it's on the side of democracy or the side of authoritarianism. I know where I stand. And I, I guess I would ask our viewers and our listeners to ask themselves and their friends and family, where do they stand? Because at the end of the day, it's going to matter. It matters now and it's going to matter tomorrow. I want to thank everybody for joining me. Stuart, before we let you go, where can everybody find you online? Find me, unfortunately, on Twitter at Stuart P. Stevens. All right. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Stuart Stevens, I want to thank you for joining me. Everybody else, if you're looking for Lincoln speech, you can go to the National Park Service website. They've got a whole download of all of Lincoln's speeches. I highly recommend you take a look at it. It is well-reasoned, well-thought-out, and it really finishes with a bang. As always, gang, thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.